Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Director Franco Terrazano has several reasons why you should be angry at our government. University of Southern California professor Karen North says it's not paranoia for U.S. schools to ban TikTok access from Wi-Fi systems on campus. Petroleum analyst Paul Pasco has a summer travel warning. He says gas prices will hit $2.50 a liter. And Chris Gardner, president of the BC Contractors and Business Association, says Canada needs to pick up its economic tempo. So, let's get started. Taxes and regulations are making it hard to put food on the table. Politicians and bureaucrats are misleading us. They're wasting our money and not being honest about how it's spent. And they're showering themselves with bonuses and raises no matter how bad a job they're doing. This is an excerpt from a column recently in the uh, Sun newspaper group. Uh, Taxpayers should be mad at the government. The author of said column, Franco Terrazano, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, on the line from Ottawa. Franco, good morning. Welcome back. Hey, good morning, and thanks for having me on so early in the morning today. Well, it's good to have you with us. Nothing like getting all <laughs> riled up on a Sunday morning. It's it's New Year's Day here, and of course, on the West Coast in Chinatown, there's the big parade, Franco. It's a big deal day here in Vancouver. So uh, let's talk a little bit about why you think we should be angry at our government, because, of course, the Liberals are trying to play off, uh, off of Pierre Poilievre, uh, tapping into the anger of Canadians. Everything is broken, this sort of thing. And you're saying, well, while you may not disagree necessarily with everything Pierre Poilievre says, you do understand his tapping into a very real sense of anger. Well, I, I do understand it, and that's the reason I, I, I wanted to write this column, because I heard a press conference with Mr. Poilievre. He was essentially asked this question, you know, why people are angry, and he said because people are hurting. And I agree with him that when you are one of the many Canadians who are worried about missing meals or worried about that you have to go to the food bank, it's very tough to put a smile on. But I think things go deeper than that, at least when it comes to anger and frustrations with the government. I think it's because the government is making, for many Canadians, their lives more difficult. Um, and it just seems like they're completely out of touch. You mentioned many of the things that, uh, that I talk about in the article. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that really uh, frustrate myself is, is this. You know, during the, the pandemic, so many people struggled. And while so many people were struggling, their representatives across all parties, by the way, took not one, not two, but three pay raises. Yeah. Right? Like, that's just so out of touch to me. And of course, I, I, the part that I'm finding most difficult is the uh, current dispute between unionized workers and the government of Canada. They were certainly looked after in ways during the entire pandemic that nobody in the private sector was. And yet they're, they're feeling outraged at being asked to go back to the office part-time, and demanding incredible wage increases. I don't think the average Canadian uh, takes a look at this this set of demands, Franco, and does anything but roll their eyes and go, oh, come on. No, these demands are crazy. These demands are crazy, and let's not mistake what these demands are. They would mean higher taxes for the people who have suffered the most during the pandemic and who continue to suffer the most. Now, let me dive into that. I'm so happy you brought that in because what we saw over the last couple of years was a tale of two pandemics. 
right? We, we hear so many of our friends in the private sector who may have lost their job, may have took a pay cut. Many small business owners, many restaurants, many gym owners were worried that their savings couldn't keep the lights on. Right. Well, behind the golden gates of government, right, you had 312,000 federal government employees receive at least one pay raise during the pandemic and lockdowns. That's either between 93% or 97% of the total federal government received at least one pay raise. Mm -hmm. Then you had hundreds of millions of dollars in bonuses handed out. And now you have union negotiators in one case asking for 30% wage increases over three years, so about 10% annually. In another case, you have other union negotiators pushing for 14% compensation increases annually. Let me say that one more time. 14% compensation hikes in one year. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so the people who make more and who struggle less are demanding these raises, and they would have to be paid for by the people who make less and have struggled more. Yeah, and and let's just carry on in the in the same uh, sense uh, in terms of outrageous spending, and we've started to see the tip of the iceberg lately, Franco, uh, as the the uh, McKinsey uh, contracts are starting to be investigated. But what uh, the National Post is saying this weekend, for example, they those contracts and serious uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, but the contracts for McKinsey, frankly, represent a drop in the bucket of billions. Spent on government outsourcing. Uh, this is new reporting from the National Post this weekend. In other words, uh, the bureaucrats who have been rewarding themselves with bonuses and pay raises uh, actually haven't been doing much of the work. That's been contracted out. And you know what's crazy about all of this, right? It's not just the contracting out, which I think you just nailed it right on the head when you said that. However, not only are we paying more for these contractors and consultants, well, the bureaucracy itself is also ballooning. So if, if we're paying more for consultants and contractors and contracting out, right. then why are we also paying more for a ballooning bureaucracy? We're looking at about $55 billion is the cost of the government's uh, pure labor right now. right? So it's not like we're just paying for more contracts or we're just paying for more bureaucrats. We're paying for more. And even more frustrating, at least to me, is that we're seeing uh, bureaucrats rewarding themselves for failure. Let me give you a couple examples here. Okay. The Bank of Canada. The Bank of Canada has one job. Keep inflation low and around 2%. Now, we could probably arm wrestle for three years about was the Bank of Canada at fault for inflation? Well, okay, let's just put that aside for a second. Regardless, it failed to meet its one target and it still gave its employees $45 million in bonuses and raises. Now, here's one for your listeners because I know that you guys have crazy home prices out there. Well, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation is a federal crown corporation. It has one objective, and that's affordability in homes for all. Okay. Well, in 2020 and 2021, Canadians couldn't afford homes. The crown corporation, though, still turned around and gave its employees $60 million in bonuses and raises during that time. So they're taking our tax dollars and rewarding themselves for failure, and we're not even hearing members of parliament speak out about this either. Yeah, and and, and let's just also, in, in terms of uh, those sorts of grants and gifts, largesse being handed out by the feds, uh, talk to us a little bit about some of the major corporate recipients of our oh. tax dollars. Yes, yes. I mean, this one is just so frustrating, right? Because you also have big business. 
that is also on the take here. And for a ton of money, okay, so the government has announced $295 million for the Ford Motor Company. Yeah, that huge corporation, the Ford Motor Company. You hear, you hear grocery stores in the news a lot. You hear, um, you hear, for example, the leader of the NDP in Ottawa hammering these grocery, uh, grocery stores. What we don't hear the NDP talking about is the corporate welfare that the federal government gave to Loblaws, for example, $12 million. Mm. Or here is another one. The government announced $420 million uh, for the Algoma Steel Company. Here's another one. The government announced $372 million for Bombardier. So the government is raising taxes on people who are working hard, who are having a difficult time making ends meet, putting food in the fridge for their families. And yet the government is turning around and handing out hundreds of millions of dollars to large corporations. Now, I'm, I'm looking through the article that you wrote, and you have a, a quote from Justin Trudeau in the article, a promise, mm-hmm. a quote, we are not going to be saddling Canadians with extra costs. The last things Canadians need is to see a rise in taxes right now. Close quote. How long ago was that? Well, that was in August of uh, 2020, and we've continued to see taxes go up and up and up here in Canada. Okay, so the government has been misleading Canadians, and you'll probably have heard that the government is trying to crack down on so-called misinformation. Yes. Well, if these politicians were really serious about cracking down on misinformation, they would stop misleading taxpayers. That's just one quote. Let me give you a few different examples. Okay. Heading right before the 2019 election, you had then Environment Minister Catherine McKenna said that the government had no intention to raise the carbon tax after 2022. No intention. Well, the carbon tax is continuing to go up until 2030 where it'll cost 37 cents per liter of gasoline. Mm -hmm. Now, if the government thought that the carbon tax was a good idea, it should not have misled Canadians, pure and simple. Let me give you another example on how it misleads taxpayers. The government continues to claim that that families will get more money back through rebates than they pay in carbon tax. Right, yes. Well, that's categorically false. And don't take my word on it. Go to the parliamentary budget officer, the government's own independent, nonpartisan budget watchdog, and the, the PBO shows that the average household, the carbon tax will cost the average family this year anywhere between $400 and $847, even after the rebate. Mm-hmm. Now, this report has been out for almost a year, so I'm sure these politicians and ministers and their staff have read the report, yet they continue to make this false claim. Well, Franco, I'm, I'm out of time, and I'm always grateful for yours, and you're certainly wide awake this morning. Great to have you start off the show. But your point your point is all of these very righteous little remarks and sermons about misinformation and how the government of Canada is determined to crack down on misinformation, a pretty hypocritical stuff when they are the ones doing most of the misleading and misinforming, isn't it? That's absolutely correct. If they really want to crack down on misinformation, then I think they need to take a look in the mirror this morning. Franco, good to have you with us. Thanks very much for this. Thanks for having me on. I'm sure you've seen this headline or heard the story in the past few days. Headline reads, Texas University bans TikTok from school networks over security concerns. It's the University of Texas at Austin with well over 50,000 students is the latest institution to restrict use of the popular app over fears that data collected will be shared with the government of China. Our next guest says... 
It's not paranoia. It's a pleasure to say good morning and welcome to Professor Karen North from the School of Digital and Social Media at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School for Communications and Journalism. Professor North, Karen, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. So why is banning TikTok on United States campuses not uh, an expression of paranoia? So TikTok, I mean, you know, one thing we can think about for those of you who use TikTok and for those of you who know people who do Mm -hmm. is that it's incredibly compelling and engaging in large part because it's collecting so much data. It, It is the model for data collection on personal um, information. So there are two things about college campuses, um, and it's very similar to the bans and uh, you know government issued devices. Mm-hmm. We all know that there are apps that will scrape data from our phones, our conversations, the documents, our search patterns, all of that. The question is, how much should we facilitate an app getting information from us that might be really you know important or very confidential information? So for the governments that have banned it, you know, like state governments and the House of Representatives, there are confidential, not only conversations and documents, but also contacts and um, other, you know, information available. And maybe that shouldn't be on the same phone as, frankly, any of these social media devices or, you know, apps, but especially TikTok. And then the second piece of it is for the government and, oh, and also, you know, for universities, student records, student information, health and, you know, mental health information, financial information, um, any of that could be on somebody's phone. But the other thing is if you think about how hackers work and they, you know, how do they hack, you know, systems or financial systems, they always have to find a way to get into our, you know, our network. How mm-hmm. do you get into the computer network? And so it's the secure logins that give the hackers an opportunity to get in. And so what the universities have done, including Texas, is they haven't banned kids from putting TikTok on their phone, but it will not work on their servers. So you, if, you, if, you, if you log into the Wi-Fi, it cuts it off. And the – sorry to be so long-winded. That's okay. The last, the last piece of it is that TikTok is owned by a company called ByteDance, right. which is in China. And the, the, the laws in China are – if you ever download anything from another country or do business with somebody from another country – you should be aware of that business's laws, the laws of that country, because that's who they answer to. And the laws in China involve collecting and sharing data directly with non-aggregated, meaning individualized data, with the Chinese government. Right. So anything collected could be stored and archived and used by the Chinese government. To me, that's not okay. So now you've talked about members of the United States House of Representatives, Karen, as being one group that does not use this platform any longer. Does that mean any U.S. congressman or woman does not have the app and is, frankly, disallowed from using TikTok at all? On government-issued phones. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, so uh, now at the university level, what they they can't do that with with uh, individual students, but what they've done is ban it from their Wi-Fi services, uh, servers rather. But you know, st- you you're a professor, you you have college kids, uh, do you deal with them every day. They're not dumb; they'll just go to data and access TikTok by bypassing Wi-Fi, won't they? That's exactly what they're doing, and um, and it, it, you know, here's the I think the universities attitude it's interesting in two respects one is that 
It's the university's responsibility to protect the secure information of the university. Sure. So we have all that, like, FERPA and, you know, all these laws that involve, like, student information must be kept secure and confidential. So it, it um, you know, exonerates them if anything happens. It's like we did everything we could. We do not even allow it on our Wi-Fi. Right. Right? So, um, so there's that. But the other thing is that I think it's the first time that people have actually taken notice of the dangers of TikTok's data collection. People have sort of talked about it as a matter of interest in the past, but when you start saying, you know, the House of Representatives, a whole bunch of state governments, you know, like governors have said it, and now Texas and, and Alabama and some other universities, it's like, you know, it's bad enough that people, that, you know, that you can't use our Wi-Fi. It at least lets kids know and let the rest of us know that it's a serious concern. Now, this uh, tech giant that owns TikTok, ByteDance, that you've identified already, uh, is very vehemently protesting almost too much uh, about how it's a (laughs) private outfit and, you know, we're we're a big business and this is what we do. But, of course, as you point out, ever so accurately, and we in Canada are paying a lot of attention to the insidious practices of the government of of China, uh, this uh, government of China can compel any Chinese company need to share data literally uh, at a moment's notice. And individualized, not aggregated. So when we talked about having ByteDance, having a buyout from, um, by the way, the other, I, I'm, I believe that 23andMe <clears throat> is partially owned by a Chinese company. And this, the thing that scares me is, <clears throat> sorry, hanging, handing over data to the government, non-aggregated. So when, when Google has our data, Google aggregates it. It's like I don't, they don't have you versus me. They have categories of data from categories of people to try to figure out, you know, how to, com- how to make a more engaging, engaging product. But the Chinese rules can involve individual, like data on you, data on me, and an archive of that. And, you know, again, it's their country, their laws. Sure. So we, you know, we're sort of fascinated by the level of surveillance in China. China has face recognition all you know all over the place i i heard from a um somebody from china the other day that the standard the gold standard in china is that if the government wants to find somebody they can actually go from we want that person to having somebody walk up to that person in seven minutes Mm. because they have so much surveillance i don't know if that's true but anecdotally it's an interesting way to look at it they they can they know people's whereabouts and people live in that world you know and it's just as Americans, we're all about our, well, you guys too, like as North Americans, we're all about our civil liberties and our individual rights. Mm-hmm. And there are countries that don't have, don't agree with us on that. So what about the uni- your school, the University of Southern California, legendary institution that it is? There, you, are, there, are there any bans on your campus yet, Karen? We do not have any bans, but we have a lot of concerns. Um, I, you know, the thing is that I'll tell you the sad thing about the taking action on TikTok <clears throat> is that it became very politicized during the Trump administration because the Trump administration tried to take, um, you know, a stand on it. And their issue was, let's just have a big American company buy it out. Mm-hmm. And when Walmart plus Microsoft, I think, was the team that was going to buy it out, the um, ByteDance was willing to sell as long as they maintained, um, you know, access to data. Right. And it's like, well, then, and then game over, like we didn't do it. So I, I think that we should all be concerned. I'm, you know, I kind of hope that my university does something. 
So it's a, it's a bad, you know, it's, I mean, for me, security is, you know, is an issue. So, you know, I, I worry about this and I hope that people take it seriously. Indeed. And I'm, I'm grateful for your time this morning and thanks ever so much. You're in our time zone and thank you ever so much for getting up early on a Sunday morning, Karen, to do this with us. It's a terribly important subject and I wonder how much the kids care. Uh, and ideally, oh, uh, it's, it's, and about, and it's about trying to get them to and you're right, they don't yet, do they? No, they don't. I mean, I have a kid in one of my classes who's majoring in cybersecurity and he gave a little report where he talked about how dangerous it was And then he said, but I just can't stop myself. I log in every day anyway. Wow. Karen North from the University of Southern California's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Thanks ever so much for this. We'll talk again. I'm delighted to have found you. Oh, and I'm so delighted to have been found by you. Remember how shocked and horrified we were last summer when gas prices around Metro Vancouver got up to about, what, $2.40 a liter? Well, our next guest says, brace yourselves, boys and girls, because this coming summer, it's likely to get a little beyond that. As we say good morning to Paul Pasco, joining us from Calgary this morning. Mr. Pasco is a principal consultant with the retail analytics platform Calibrate. Paul Pasco, good morning and welcome. Morning, Sterling. Good to have you with us, Paul. It's uh, not a great news story that you have for us, but I suppose being prepared helps remove some of the sticker shock when it finally rolls around. The price of gas this morning, by the way, Paul, up three cents from yesterday. It was one eighty-two yesterday. It's one eighty-five nine per liter in uh, Metro Vancouver. Just for curiosity, what's the price of a liter of gas in Calgary today, Paul? Uh, it, it has been climbing here recently as well. I believe when I was out and about yesterday, I was seeing about a dollar thirty-four, dollar thirty-five a liter. Yeah. Well, of course, there's the difference right there. The Alberta BC difference. Ouch! Already. Yeah. So, why on earth are you feeling as comfortable you as you are in late January to predict record high beyond the record highs we saw last summer uh, prices again this summer? What are the factors, Paul? Uh, probably the largest driving factor is going to be refinery outage and maintenance. So a, a large number of refineries last summer delayed doing some scheduled maintenance, turnaround work. Um, just with gas prices being so good, the the refining margins were so great that they did not go down. But they can only delay this work for so long. And now they're going to be required to go down this year. They have to. So starting in May, we're going to see greater planned outages, but far greater volume of planned outages than we saw last summer. So our, our ability to tolerate any global events is, is going to be out the window and the price of crude is going to, going to continue to climb. There's there's not really any factors in the market right now and unless China were to completely collapse that can pull that price of crude back downwards. Well, that's interesting because you're saying there's going to be a reduced supply because of refinery capacity this summer and yet last summer when we were hovering at about 240 a liter here, Paul, we were convinced at that time it was about supply and demand and supply was low. Uh, supply was low, and, and this is the thing. We're going to have even less supply, and, and as we you know, slowly crept forward, demand has, has done nothing but increase. So it, it's, it's each year demand is a little bit higher than it was the year before. Okay. Now, what are the other factors that, I mean, of course, it, it's a, it, the, the price of a barrel of oil is a, is a world it's a global price, and of course, the Canadian price of a barrel oil is a, a discounted from that global price. But uh, the factors that determine the price of oil do—it's uh, about global supply, not just what's available to us here in North America, right? It, it is, and you know, we're we're starting to see. I mean, the, the world has accommodated what's happened to Russia, but 
It's made the, the current sources maybe a little more expensive. We're having to ship oil further. There's there's more avenues open too for our products now that now that Russia isn't feeding as much of Europe. Europe is looking to buy from other sources, and and now you start to compete with what the Europeans are willing to pay. And and I'm, I'm sure there's there's some European countries that'd be very happy to pay a dollar sixty yeah for gasoline. So uh, and you know this is a really negative conversation. So early in the yeah. day, but you know the folks at Deloitte are predicting a recession for 2023 here in Canada. Not a heavy nasty one, but they are predicting a recession. What mm-hmm. if that unfolds as Deloitte is predicting, and they're pretty accurate? What impact, if any, would that have on oil prices or gas prices, Paul? So far, what we're seeing is, I mean, that recession's already been priced into the market. That's okay. why we were so so fortunate to see some of the lower prices that we saw over Christmas was sort of global markets accommodating that recession. But what we're what's counterbalancing that on the global market is that China has dropped all of their policies. They're starting to purchase a lot more oil, and and a lot of people are thinking that China is going to use this opportunity to refine a lot of oil, sell it into Europe which is just going to increase the China demand. So while it's great that they're adding product on the refined side, they're going to increase their demand on the raw side, and then it's going to be a net balancing. So to date so far, China's China's demand and the recovery in China is balancing the recession outlook. And, and my thoughts are that by about August or so, we're going to see the recession outlook starting to leave the market, and the market's going to start looking forward to the recovery and coming back out of that in the following January or so. Mm-hmm. I, I simply don't know the answer to this, and you're the the professional in this conversation. We know that the Trans Mountain Pipeline twinning project is underway between Alberta and British Columbia. What's the status of that? Is there any? Are we anywhere close to having more supply simply be, being made available through the pipeline? It, it, we're getting closer. Um, I, I'm not fully up to date on the on where we are right now. When I'd last taken an update on that pipeline, I, I, I felt like January 2024 is when we'll see that pipeline come in. Okay. But even with that, even with that pipeline coming in, it, it will open up an avenue for some fresh new refined product to get delivered to the West Coast. But that's largely an export plan pipeline, so it's it's going to allow more crude to be shipped to. Asian destinations from the West Coast of Canada. So as far as prices, in terms of expectations, now gas to just overnight here on the West Coast, Paul is up three cents a litre, and that's, you know, that's kind of, you have a little variance, uh, up uh, five cents up and down one way or another, you tend not to notice, except two weeks ago, it was in the 160s, now it's in the mid-180s. Is this the beginning, or will we see possible uh, hills and valleys in pricing going forward? I, I would expect some hills and valleys, but this this sort of rise in pricing would have been expected over the two to three weeks prior. We saw the price of crude rise ten percent, and in sort of in kind, we see a few weeks later we see the price of gasoline rise about ten percent. Right. So again, uh, as we factor, and it's January is a great time to do this. A lot of people stuck in in in, in winter uh, environments start planning summer holidays well in advance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, if you know gas is likely to be about two fifty a liter by the time your vacation rolls around, you should probably plan for that, right? That that's exactly what I mean. That's personally what I'm doing. I'm I'm accounting for the fact that my summer driving is probably going to cost me ten to fifteen percent more than it did last year and then start making budget changes now so that I can I can keep doing some of the 
larger travel events that I wanted to do. Well, I appreciate your advice this early in the game as far as 2023 goes, Paul, because that sort of planning actually will be very helpful as we as we approach the fun time of the year. Thanks for, exactly. so much for doing this with us today. It's good to have you on the show. No problem. Have a great day. Our next guest is the president of the Independent Contractors and Business Association of British Columbia. A pleasure to say good morning and welcome to Chris Gardner, who's here to talk about Canadian productivity levels, which I assume he would agree with me are pretty much an international embarrassment. Chris Gardner, good morning. Uh, good morning, Sterling. It's great to be on the show this morning. Well, it's good to have you with us. You wrote a terrific piece in the Glacier a newspaper group there the other day. Canada needs to pick up its economic tempo. And tempo is an interesting word because the Germans have adopted the, uh, they call it, and I don't know how to pronounce it in German, but they have the Deutschland tempo. I think that's close. And basically yeah. that's just talking about how they're planning their economy. And you describe the Canadian tempo, uh, as you, and I'm quoting from you now, Chris, uh, Canadian tempo right now could best be described as glacial planning, less building, and slow modernization. Frustrating to see so much opportunity slip away. It's so bad that 75% of the jobs added in Canada since the pandemic started have been government jobs. That's not a good sign, Chris. No, we're, we're um, you know, these, uh, if you look at all, the, all of the statistics where Canada's economic performance is being measured compared to other countries. Uh, we've been slipping quite significantly over the last number of decades. And this isn't, this isn't new. We talk about this a lot. The challenge is we've got successive governments that, that aren't doing what, what needs to be done to correct this reversal. And we just continue to slip and to slip and to slip. So another statistic that we highlighted in the, uh, in the editorial was that if you look at the length of time it takes Canada to approve a major infrastructure or construction project, we're ranked number 64 in the world. Yeah. That was coming from the World Bank. And, and so you've got 63 other co- countries that are able to do this faster than we are. And then just last year, the OECD looked at the, the 38 most advanced economies in the world and rank their economic performance over the next, over the coming decade, the next 10 years. Okay. And um, we were not in the top 10, the top 20, the top 30. We were dead last of the 38. And so if you think about what that means, they're projecting our economy will grow about 1% a year over the next 10 years. So that means if you look at the size of our economy now, it's going to take more than 70 years for our economy to double in size. And so the implications of that are, are fairly significant. If you remember growing up where parents and grandparents would say, you know, we've made all these sacrifices so that you or kids can, can live a better life, a sure. higher quality lifestyle, um, at the rates of growth that are now being projected for Canada, we just simply can't make that promise anymore. It's just not going to happen. So let's talk a little bit about the whys. And obviously we have, and you've talked about successive governments. The Liberals alone aren't going to wear this. The Harper government had its role to play in in Canadian infrastructure and in energy planning and all the rest of it. But you, you take a look at the current government, for example, and having turned down not one, but two deals or two opportunities for the Canadian petro sector to supply LNG to both Germany and Japan, two allies 
realize that, uh, uh, and respected business partners, uh, the government has this green obsession to the point where a lot of Canadians, not all certainly, Chris, but a lot of Canadians are quite convinced the government is basically running a counterproductive agenda. Well, I think when it comes to, if you look at our energy sector, it is the major source of, of it's the number one source of Canadian exports. Uh, and that's all, everything that comes from the energy sector, and you lump it all together. And it's an enormous employer directly and indirectly in this country, billions of dollars in, um, in economic spinoffs and hundreds of thousands of jobs all across the country. And um, so the challenge we have, if you just look at LNG, and LNG is much, much uh, cleaner burning fuel, uh, than oil mm-hmm. and certainly than coal. And um, so there's been a lot of discussion about as we transition to a cleaner, greener economy, LNG can be a, an important stepping stone. And so back in 2013, um, neither the United States nor Canada were exporting LNG. Not a drop was being exported from Canada or the U.S. Okay. There were no export facilities operational in Canada or the U.S. 10 years ago. Fast forward to today, The U.S. has got nearly 10 that are now exporting facilities that are exporting LNG. They've got another eight under construction, and we've got two under construction. So the the U.S. has vaulted into one of the major exporters of LNG in the world, um, and um, they, you know, the you alluded to the Chancellor of Germany coming to Canada in 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 the late summer. And the prime minister, our prime minister is saying, well, there's no business case to export LNG from uh, North America, from Canada to Europe. Uh, a few months later, the prime minister of Britain and Joe Biden, the president of the United States, sit down and sign a deal that will double the exports of LNG from the United States to Great Britain. Mm-hmm. So there is a business case. We're just missing the opportunity. We're going to talk forestry in a few minutes with Adam Olson from the Green Party. And I, and I wanted to go to forestry for a second because we're starting to see closures in B.C. forest production uh, outfits. Uh, we've got Can4 closing their Prince George pulp uh, facility to the tune of 300 jobs, Chris. Um, and we're also seeing, just in the forestry sector alone, and I'm isolating this just for a moment, we're seeing Canadian, British Columbia, based forestry companies investing abroad rather than here in Canada, let alone here in B.C.? Yeah, you know, and again, it's about, um, you know, uh, the, the provincial government, the federal government, and in many cases, local, setting the conditions to attract investment, not turn it away. So last, uh, you know, a few months ago, I was on a conference call with about 40 CEOs, and one of them was the CEO of one of the largest forest companies in Canada, uh-huh. uh, in BC, and he said, listen, in the last two years, we've invested more than $2 billion in expanding our operations, new technology, hiring people, but he said, not a single dollar of that has been invested in Canada. We've invested in the United States and we invested in Europe. And the simple reason is because he it's too difficult to get big projects approved in this country generally because we, we tend to say no and, um, and we put up roadblocks. And other countries are actually making it easier to invest and they're attracting the investment. And that's the challenge we have in Canada. We've, we convince ourselves that somehow the world wants to come to Canada. Investors all want to come to Canada. And it's a little bit of an illusion. 
And we're seeing that now play out in a way that's going to hurt our long-term prosperity and hurt our, and it's hurting our competitiveness. And yet, Chris, we know something can be done. For example, the people of Vancouver, out of sheer frustration, uh, voted for Ken Sim and the ABC party. We now have a party, a majority party in the city of Vancouver that is dedicated to getting things done. I know they all say they are, but in this case, they have an agenda that uh, is, is, I would think, tempo-oriented in terms of actually getting things done, and they specifically talk about approvals. Vancouver has a horrible reputation for taking forever to approve a construction or a, a housing project, and one of the objectives of this new administration is to get things done, accelerate the approval process. If they can do that on the municipal level, why can't we do it at the provincial and federal level? In other words, it can be done. We have proof positive right here in town. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. There, there is um, the, the the issue with housing affordability comes down to one very fundamental issue, and that is we can't get enough supply on the market. And until we change that, until city halls uh, approve projects faster, uh, we will not solve the affordability crisis that that's playing out in every major center in this country. Mm-hmm. And you are right. Ken Sim was elected. Every single person who ran on the ABC team won. I think there was an enormous amount of frustration with affordability, with issues around public safety. Um, and uh, I think uh, I think voters are looking at Ken and his team with, with a breath, breath of fresh air. And, uh, you know, we're excited to see them start to uh, turn in a different direction. Well, let's project that forward to the other two levels of government responsible, significantly more responsible for the national economy uh, and I'm talking now about elections due at very latest next year in both British Columbia and Canada by then do you think the sense of frustration that caused Vancouverites to elect a majority city council will be pervasive enough in both British Columbia and nationally to cause the kinds of changes administrative changes the country needs well, you know, the thing about uh, our politics is that it's very, it's, it's very polarized, it's, it's very divided, and, and the level of frustration is, is increasing and it is significant. So that does lay the groundwork for changes in government. Um, but it also, that's not necessarily so. Um, and incumbent governments can win through, um, um, through spending money and, and, you know, segmenting the population, putting money here, putting money there, and people thinking, okay, well, you know, they're, who's in power now might be better than the alternative. But I, I do think that uh, when you look at how we're performing economically, where the opportunities are, and what's happening in terms of investment in Canada, you know, outbound investment in Canada has exceeded inbound investment in Canada every year since 2014. Yeah. So we're losing more dollars than are coming in. Mm-hmm. That's not good. Um, if you look at our... Uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about immigration and what that means for our future. And if you look at what happened in British Columbia last year, for the first time that we can find, more people died in British Columbia last year than were born. So mm-hmm. if you think of that, more deaths than births last year, first year on record that we've been able to track down, our, our population's flatlined. And so when you look at that is going to impact our long-term e- economic growth. To have a growing, vibrant economy, you need a growing, vibrant population. Sure. But it's not just good enough to open the doors and say, come on in. You've got to lay the conditions for success. There's no point in going out and recruiting doctors and nurses to help a healthcare system that's on the verge of collapse. And, and it's going to take them two, three, four years to get their credentials recognized. Let's figure that out. Um, there's no point in getting skilled tradespeople to bring them in and they need some additional training. It's going to take them eight to ten years in British Columbia to get a Red Seal designation in the construction trades. 
because there's not enough spaces and there's not enough instructors. So all three levels of, of, of government are responsible for this in various ways, and they've got to stop finger-pointing, working together, because all of our, our success and our long-term prosperity hinges on government getting it right. Absolutely. Chris Gardner wrote this piece, and look, Google it in the, I saw it in the North Shore News, but it's in all the Glacier newspapers. The editorial is entitled, Canada Needs to Pick Up Its Economic Tempo, uh, written by the president of the Independent Contractors and Business Association, our guest, Chris Gardner. Chris, thanks for joining us this morning. Great editorial. We'll talk again. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.